Right, it's nice. It's actually like I'm really excited about today. It's actually nice to be able to preach again. I mean, the last time I preached was not even last year, it was the year before. So I feel it feels good to preach again. It feels good to be in front of all your, your faces. <laughs> Let's just open up quickly and pray. Lord, I just thank you for this opportunity. I thank you for your Holy Spirit being present here today. We welcome you into this place. We've already welcomed you with our wonderful worship, Lord. I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for what a rock-solid um, truth it is in a world full of lies. And I just thank you, Lord God, that you will embellish this word today with your words. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I want you to picture this. Let's say that you are fast asleep and you wake up. And the first thing that you see sitting on your bed in front of you is a... Um, a reporter with a microphone putting it in your face and a big camera next to him broadcasting live to the world and the question as you open your eyes the guy asks you the question why the Bible why do you believe in the Bible so you haven't had a chance to think about it <laughs> so I want you to think about that today as we as I preach this message I want you to really think about what your exact answer is because a lot of people might think that they have an answer to that question but if you try actually articulate it you find that you stumble a bit or you don't or you just have an answer which we will <laughs> which we will get to in due time so today I want to talk to you about a topic that is of the utmost importance to us as Christians it's a topic that relates to biblical authority and I don't mean biblical authority as in the concept of authority within the Bible I mean biblical authority as in the authority that the word possesses um, so I want to give us an appreciation today for why the Bible is the authoritative word of God firstly and why it's so important to our beliefs and then I also want to give us an answer to that same question of why why should we believe the Bible over other books or why do we believe the Bible so a bit of apologetics and now remember apologetics is not something for the elite few you know the the hardcore Christians the the commando Christians it's for everyone <laughs> I think a lot of people tend to forget this so in 1 Peter 3 15 Set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts and always be ready to share an answer to anyone who asks about the hope you possess. That's directed to all of us, not just to preachers, not just to ministers, etc. So let's remember that today as well. So I'm going to divide this message into two parts. The first part is going to be about the authority of the Bible and why it matters. And the second part is going to be an answer to why do we believe the Bible. So a practical answer that you can actually use, that you can share the next time someone asks you, why do you believe the Bible? And it's very easy to remember as well because, yeah, you'll see. <laughs> it's, quite a, it's quite a wordy answer, but it's a good one. Um, okay, so let's start off with the first section and let's start off with the definition of authority. So authority is the power or right to control, judge or prohibit the actions of others. So let's say that again. The power or right to control, judge or prohibit the actions of others. So this means that when we say that the Bible is the authoritative word of God, we're saying that we have to submit to its authority, which means we have to be, our actions are controlled, judged, or prohibited by the Bible. And especially so because we all follow the central message of the Bible, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? And Jesus himself is, of course, inseparable from the word of God. Jesus is known as the, the word, the word made flesh, right? Why should we respect the Bible when, like a, an argument that you often hear, and I'm sure some of you guys must have heard this before, is people love to say, hey, 
I follow Jesus, but I don't necessarily follow the Word. It's one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard. Because if Jesus himself submitted to, the, to Scripture or gave Scripture reverence, why should we not do the same? And how can we separate that? And also, if you think about it, I mean, a lot of people tend to think of this, you know, this is a book. This is just a book that's whatever, some human wrote it. But the truth is that it's not a book, it's the divine words of God. It's literally God's word. And if you think of it like that, that it's God's word, then when you talk about submitting to the authority of the word, you're actually submitting to God. You're not submitting to a book. <laughs> but I think people can't understand this. <laughs> or actually, rather, people do understand it, but they're they, um, trying to find their way around certain things. Right, so in John 1 verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was fully God. The Word was with God in the beginning. In all these cases, the, the word, Word, is capitalized, because it's referring to Jesus. Why, why is Jesus known as the Word? Because He is literally God's mouthpiece here on earth. God came to earth to actually be able to give us revelation in a human form. This book over here is obviously God's revelation given to us uh, uh, through a prophetic means, whereas with Jesus, it was actually him speaking directly. In verse 14, now the word became flesh and took residence among us. In John 14:10, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. There you can see Jesus submitting to the Father's authority. Every word that he says, which is all encapsulated in this book, he's saying, he's speaking it on God's authority. Now, the authority of the Bible has been under threat for, very, for many centuries and across various different means. But, um, yeah, something is a bit different about the way that it is right now. Uh, I would say that the world is so diametrically opposed to anything remotely Christian or remotely biblical that we should be quite alarmed as Christians. If you look at any of the major issues that we face today, we've got issues like LGBTQ rights, we've got um, abortion up to and including at birth. So the, you, you could technically just call it murder because you're killing someone who has actually been born. Never mind still in the womb, you're actually killing someone who has been born. So yeah, a little bit alarming. Um, men pretending to be women, <laughs> women pretending to be men, and anyone who disagrees with them is cancelled or shut down. There's heavy anti-Israeli rhetoric. Um, something interesting is the traction of socialist, economic and political stances. Now this is something I would love to talk about one day. You see this rise of socialism in the world today. And it's, it's not a biblical stance. People seem to think that it's wonderful, but it's not biblical at all. And I would love to get into that one day. And then the worst of all is the falling away of the church. And that ties into our topic today. So for the first time, the concept of so-called progressive Christianity is really starting to take hold. It's starting to gain momentum that you can see basically everywhere. Now, if you haven't heard of progressive Christianity before, I'm pretty sure that you've experienced it or at least seen it in action. So to put it bluntly, progressive Christianity is taking the truth or the word and twisting it to align to our own opinions or, or feelings or inclinations and discarding anything in the Bible that does not agree with that. Um, progressive Christian, Christians take their cue out of the social justice issues of our day. Uh, so in other words, you just try to take 
all the, the truths in the word and try to align them to the social justice theme. The general idea that they put forth is that the Bible is antiquated, outdated, irrelevant or just wrong. And that at best the Bible is just a, a, a rule book or a guidebook on how to have a good life basically or some good principles, you know. I've heard people calling the Bible like a, it's a good, you know, moral guide type of thing. <laughs> As if like you can just, you know, like I'm not feeling so good today, let me just read the Bible and maybe it'll give me some upliftment, you know. So the Bible and Christianity is requiring adaptation to the times and that we need to get with it. <laughs> and uh, love is seen as the overriding principle. You hear this very often that people talk about love as if love guides all things. But then when you look close enough at what they're talking about when they talk about love, it's actually nothing like love. It's, it's generally more like lust. And it's not biblical love either, that's for sure. So now listen to this definition of progressive Christianity utilized in Roger Wolsey's book. Uh, I, I'm not making up this name. Like, <laughs> I don't know where people come up with names like this. Kissing Fish Christianity for People Who Don't Like Christianity. That's the name of his book. <laughs> Whatever that's supposed to mean. So progressive Christianity... Remember, this is supposedly a Christian talking. Progressive Christianity is an approach to the Christian faith that is influenced by post-liberalism and post-modernism and proclaims Jesus of Nazareth as Christ, Saviour and Lord, emphasizes the way and teachings of Jesus and not merely his person. This is already a little bit of a red, uh, red flag there. Why would you not emphasize the person of Jesus Christ, which is way more significant than um, his teachings necessarily? Emphasize God's imminence and not merely God's transcendence. Imminence is in God being here with us as opposed to God being up in heaven. Uh, leans towards panentheism rather than supernatural theism. Emphasizes salvation here and now instead of primarily in heaven later. It's very weird. <laughs> it's very weird. Emphasizes being saved for robust, e abundant, eternal life over being saved from hell. Very strange, but anyway, emphasizes the social communal aspects of salvation instead of the personal. So there already you can see the social thing coming in. Why, why would your salvation be, why is salvation about other people's, uh, like what, what about your own personal relationship with Jesus? That's taking second place here, over and above social communal issues. Stresses social justice as integral to Christian discipleship. Now we had, uh, we had um, our discipleship course, of, I think it was last year or the year before, you know, um, was it Rebuild, right? Did we talk about LGBTQ rights as being one of our priorities? No. Takes the, and here's the one that really is the worst and the one that relates to today's message. Takes the Bible seriously, but not necessarily literally. Embracing a more interpretive, metaphorical understanding. Now, I don't know about you, but that, that's kind of worrying to me. Imagine, and I like to use this example, imagine your dad comes to you or someone comes to you and says, okay, if you break that window, I'm going to give you a hiding. And you're like, yeah, I'll take you seriously, but I won't take you literally. <laughs> and then when he gives you a hiding, you're like, well, I don't understand. I, I was taking you, you know, I didn't think you were literally meaning that. Imagine one day when God does something and you're like, oh, but I didn't think you literally meant that. Then it's going to be a scary day. <laughs> So yeah, the idea here is that it's more of a subjective sort of understanding of the Bible, which means everyone can apply their own lens to it. 
emphasizes orthopraxy instead of orthodoxy which is right actions over right beliefs embraces reason as well as paradox and mystery I mean are you kidding me <laughs> what in the Bible is there about paradox and mystery in other words things that look fake but they're actually real instead of blind allegiance to rigid doctrines and dogmas and does not consider homosexuality to be sinful and does not claim that Christianity is the only valid or viable way to connect to God i.e. Christianity is non-exclusive now I know I'm talking to proper Christians here, to here, uh, here today and I know that all of you know that as I read through that thing every one of those things you could see do not relate to the word at all but specifically the one that really irks me is the one that's saying taking the Bible seriously but not necessarily literally now I'm like one of the most hardcore believers in the word I believe it is the literal word of God and maybe people disagree with that but I believe it is and a lot of Christians are actually willing to let go of that uh, belief um, nowadays a recent Gallup survey that they conducted in, in the US they asked American Christians so not just Americans, American Christians do you believe that the Bible is the literal word of God? and only 24% of them said yes 24% of Christians so that's less than one quarter of Christians said that it's the word of God now that alarms me quite dramatically because you've got to ask yourself the question if, if the Bible is not the literal word of God then what is it? like what is this book actually? and also what do you place or where does your faith come from? think about it, if the Bible didn't exist how would you know about God? How would you, you, you would, your answer is generally going to be well you know I experienced it or I heard it from someone else but how is that like a, a solid foundation? how has God revealed himself to us? He's revealed himself to us through his word, right? How else would we know about him? So I believe the reason why so many Christians today have bought into this whole progressive Christianity movement is because they're not 100% comfortable or confident in the authority and the authenticity of the word, or both of them. Or they do know that it's authentic and authoritative, but they just choose not to acknowledge it. Sorry, I just want to drink some water. <laughs> I was, I was thinking that we need to actually get a, a wooden, what do you call it, pulpit, <laughs> right? Sorry. So today I want to talk to you about this magnificent book. I want to talk to you about this beautiful, beautiful thing. Now let me start off by saying that I went through a phase or a journey, let's say, a couple, over a couple of years where I was really really interested in the historicity of the Bible and if you ask Pastor Paul he'll know I pestered him day and night asking him about give me books on um, give me books to explain and to guide me and resources that will show me how the Bible came to be because I want to know I want to know the history of the Bible and I want to know why is there so much uh, credence behind the, the word and I mean I must be entirely honest that I actually at one point had quite a lot of anxiety around whether the word is authentic or not and the reason for that was because I was subjected to some very very strong arguments from atheists and or some very persuasive atheists and um, agnostics specifically around the authenticity of the word and they dial in generally into something called textual criticism now textual criticism is where you take manuscripts or this you study manuscripts and you see how the Bible came to be from it so like this this Bible is an NET Bible. 
how do I get from this book, this translation, back to the manuscripts? Or can you go from this book back to the manuscripts? That's the question of textual criticism. And the people that practice this textual criticism, these biblical scholars, many of whom are not Christian, they will tend to focus on how there are these variations between different uh, translations of the word, like the ESV, the NIV, etc. Why are there these different translations? And then they especially focus on something called uh, copyist errors. And copyist errors is a funny thing. So <laughs> they'll say that there's thousands of these, thousands of copyist errors. So remember, the Bible was written by people on, uh, well, let's call them, they called autographs, the original documents that, that the, the authors themselves wrote. But what we have, these manuscripts are all copies. So now what these scholars do is they say, okay, so in one, across all of these different thousands of manuscripts, like let's say the word answer is in one of these, in one manuscript you've got the word answer. In another manuscript you've got the word answer but it's A-N-S-W-A. In another, in another manuscript you've got the word answer but it's answers with an S at the end. And then in another manuscript you've got the word answer and it's A-N-S-E, uh, A-N-S-W-E. Those would count as four different copyist errors. But like, you guys are all reasonable human beings here today. <laughs> if you had to read that, what would you say the answer is? Or what would you think that was actually written there? It's, I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious, right? So they focus on all of these kind of errors and say, well, this is the reason why you can't believe the Bible. We must remember that humans have copied the Word of God. Humans have copied it from the original autograph to the, 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 book, the book that we have today. And yes, they may have made human errors, such as spelling mistakes. I mean, I don't know, you can go and try and write a Bible today. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure that even if you have the best intentions, you will probably make a couple of mistakes. But that doesn't change the fact that the original documents or autograph that the person received revelation from God and put it down onto paper, they didn't make a mistake. They wrote exactly the words that God wanted to be on the document, uh, in the Bible. So today I want to equip us with a couple of pointers that will help us weather the storm that we are facing and that we are going to continue facing until the day of our Lord's return, specifically around this attack on uh, the Bible. And let me tell you from the outset, if you're one of those people, and I hope no one here is, that isn't 100% comfortable or confident that the Word of God is the Word of God, then I can guarantee you that at some point in time the devil is going to pull you over the coals and he's going to make you question whether you are willing to stake your life on this book or on the truths within this book. And it's very scary because if he does that, what are you going to hang on to? So with all of that said, um, let's look at some reasons for why you can be confident that the Bible is authentic and that's the authoritative word of God. And this is where we get on to the second part, which is an answer to why do we believe that the, why do we believe the Bible? So Pastor Vim, if I had to ask you today, why the Bible above other books? Why the Bible? Or Pendai, if I had to say, why the Bible and not the Quran? <laughs> or Langa, why is the Bible the authoritative text? What would you guys say? Like, do you have an answer that you are comfortable or confident in sharing? And it's a really important question because one day, if you're sharing the gospel with someone, you must understand that a person can be like, okay, the story of Jesus resonates with me, it's wonderful, but by what authority do you believe that it's true? 
And for us as Christians, I mean, <laughs> if we can't answer that, generally we would, we're going to appeal to the Bible in some way. We're going to say because of something to do with the Bible, right? But then they'll say, well, why is the Bible the authoritative text? Why the Bible and not another book? So let's go through some potential answers. <laughs> and we start with the worst one. And I hope that no one here was thinking this answer today. I believe the Bible because I was raised to believe the Bible. <laughs> it sounds good. It sounds good. You think that, you know, there's a lot of wonderful parents out there. There's a lot of good friends out there. There's a lot of good people that are very well-natured and um, well-intentioned. But as we all know, human beings are fallible. There's not a single person on earth today who has not lied. We've all lied. We've all lied to our kids. We talk about Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny and stupid things like that. But how can us, or how can we as Christians place our faith or our foundation in, in who we believe in, in the God and who we believe in, on a human being? You know, on a fallible human being. And worst of all is that if we say that, yes, um, we believe the Bible because we were raised to believe it, then what, how does that separate us from a Muslim, for example? A Muslim can say, my parents raised me to believe the Quran. There's no difference. So our answer and their answer are precisely on par with each other. Maybe your answer, this is a little bit better maybe, but maybe your answer is, I, I believe the Bible because I tried it and it changed my life. <laughs> Probably a little bit more persuasive because now you can say, okay, well, I'm sharing my testimony and people must see, you know, that the Bible changed me. I used to be a, a hardcore sinner. I used to take drugs. I used to kill people, all that kind of stuff. And now I'm a saint and my life has changed for the better. That's a, quite a persuasive argument, right? If you used your testimony. And we must be careful. Testimonies do have their place and they're very powerful. But your testimony cannot be the reason for why you believe in God. And the reason for that is because, again, you get caught up by the same thing. There's Muslims, there's Buddhists who have gone through divine encounters, who have experienced God or some higher being. And again, they will say the exact same thing. They will say, I went through this experience and there are cases of this, thousands of cases of this. I went through this experience and my life has changed I'm a, and I'm a saint. So again, your answer is exactly the same as theirs. And we can't have, we need to be... Uh, we need to have something that's unique. Now, when it comes to defending the Bible's authenticity and authority, we can appeal directly to the Bible itself. In fact, we should appeal to the Bible itself. And the reason for that is because, like I just shared, the Bible is the highest authority to us because the Bible is God's word. It's literally God speaking. So if, if we wanted to defend God's authority, who would, we, who would we use as our reference point? We would use God. So now if we want to defend the authority of the Bible, whose, whose reference point are we going to use? We're going to use God's. But don't mistake me on this, that we, we don't need to actually defend the Bible. So we don't need to go and say, if someone asks us about this, we don't actually have to defend it. This is the funny part, that the Bible is like a lion. You just let it free. <laughs> it defends itself. God defends himself. All we have to do is to just take the truths that are within this book and reveal it to other people. You don't have to embellish it with your own words. You don't have to um, perform any expositionary uh, preaching. You just have to show them what's written here because any human can understand it. In Matthew 5 verse 18, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke of a letter will pass from the law until everything takes place. This is Jesus speaking. 
Now, when Jesus speaks about the law, he's actually referring to the Old Testament, or he's referring to Scripture, technically. Now, God, uh, Jesus is effectively saying that the Bible is complete. Everything that is within there is authentic. If he's talking about the Old Testament at this point in time, and obviously knowing that there's going to be a New Testament as well, he's saying that not even one, this is how you know the Bible is authentic, not even one, the smallest letter or stroke of a letter. In English, this isn't actually as good as how it sounds in uh, Hebrew. But in Hebrew, it talks about the specific, there's these different, it's almost like a, how you dot an I and stroke a T. But in Hebrew, they've got even smaller letters than that. And he's saying that not one single of those little things will be, will be ignored uh, in terms of the word. Okay, so let's get through to, uh, to our actual answer to this question of why do we believe the Bible? And this is a very practical and very wordy answer. But we're going to go through it section by section. Now, I owe credit to um, a guy, an expository apologist, Dr. Vody Borkham. He's an American guy, American preacher, but he actually is the Dean of Theology at African Christian University in Zambia at the moment. Now, he's a fantastic expository uh, apologist, and I keep saying this wrong, expository (laughs) apologism apologetics is where you take the Bible and you defend the Bible from the Bible. In other words, you say that the Bible is complete and self-sufficient, so every answer that we need to any question is already within here. So we don't need to appeal to like philosophical type of arguments, for example, which a lot of people like to use. There's nothing wrong with that, but there's just a lot of power in using the Bible when it comes to apologetics. So, now are you ready for this this answer? It's quite long, but um, so if someone comes to me, Sean, why do you believe the Bible? And this is what I would say to them. The Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses which report supernatural events in fulfillment of specific prophecies claiming that they are words of divine origin rather than human in origin. (laughs) Quite Quite a mouthful. But we're going to go through it section by section and hopefully by the end you will um, have memorized this. But you'll see how powerful this is. And this is not just something that's made up. It actually comes from scripture. It's founded in uh, uh, 2 Peter 2 verse yeah, 2 Peter 2 verse 16 to 21. And we'll go through each of those uh, well we'll go through 2 Peter 2 as well as we go through the different sections. Okay. So the first part, the Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents, point one. Okay, let's start with this point. So now, have you ever considered that the Bible is a is one single story? Um, a lot of critics of the Bible like to say, no, you know, the Bible is just a whole bunch of random stories that people just, you know, they found certain manuscripts and they just threw them together and put together this Bible. Or that there's certain books missing from the Bible or something like that. Now, anyone here who has read the Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, if you can honestly tell me that the Bible is not one cohesive story, then, yeah, let's have a meeting afterwards and you can explain that to me because I I can't understand that. For me, if I read the Bible, I see that it is just one cohesive story. And I don't see the Old Testament and the New Testament as like two different things, you know, like 
the Old Testament is Judaism and the New Testament is Christianity. No. Anyone who says that is not appreciating all the prophecies that are being fulfilled in the New Testament. So, something, the way that the Bible and the verses all um, come together so seamlessly astonishes me. And one thing that I owe uh, credit to Tor for is that he introduced me to a guy called Dr. Chuck Misler, who is like a, a Bible teacher. And you can go onto YouTube and you can watch this. He does this series called The Bible in 24 Hours. So he literally runs through the whole Bible in 24 hours. So if you want to know the Bible in 24 hours, go check it out. And it's very impressive. But what's most impressive about it is how he takes patterns. He, he demonstrates patterns for you in Scripture of how things that start in the Old Testament carry through into the New. And he calls them threads. So it's almost like there's a thread that you pick up in the Old Testament. Imagine like a long thread. You pick it up and you pull on that thread and you keep going and going and going and you reach like a fulfillment in the New Testament. It's absolutely incredible. I really recommend it for someone who wants like confidence in the Word. So now if we consider that the Bible is just one story, now you must understand how ridiculous this is, that if the Bible is one story, we've got 66 different books that are written by 40 plus different authors. Those authors come from three different continents, Europe, Africa and Asia. They, they wrote in three different languages, Greek, Hebrew and Aramaic. And the Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years. So now you've got people who do not know, 40 plus different people who do not know each other, who come from different backgrounds. Okay, some of them did know each other, but <laughs> the majority didn't know each other. Come from completely different backgrounds and you know, you've got people who are persecutors of the faith, you've got prisoners, you've got kings, you've got all kinds of different things. And yet, when you read the Bible, it comes together as one seamless story. Like, doesn't that blow your mind? <laughs> it blows my mind. I, I, I can't understand how someone like Moses, who lived thousands of years before people in the New Testament, wrote stuff that still, like, is so seamless. And the prophecies, and we'll get into the prophecies in a second, so the Bible has thousands upon thousands of manuscripts supporting it. And I mean literally thousands. I'm not just using that as a statement. The Bible has thousands and thousands of manuscripts. Those manuscripts are in different languages. And yet still, when you read them across the different languages, they all correlate with each other. It blows your mind. And we have, we have uh, manuscripts that are as old as 100 AD for the New Testament. Jesus died round about what? 33 AD, right? If we follow the normal logic. That means that this, these copies of the original autographs that we have are within one lifetime of the original document being written. Now for me that blows my mind because again, you're saying that you're writing something that someone who is still living can actually disprove and say, well, you know, that's not true. I was actually alive and I saw that. And then with regards to the Old Testament, we have manuscripts as old as 300 BC. The Dead Sea Scrolls are ancient, 300 BC. In other words, before Jesus was born, we've got manuscripts that are that old. <laughs> right? That blows your mind. So we've got all these thousands of manuscripts and we don't have time to go into how those correlate to these books that we have today, but suffice to say that they do. Um, that you can literally take these words on this book right here and trace them back to manuscript. That's how accurate it is. And now another thing is that there's over 25,000 archaeological digs have been done specifically 
around uh, topics to do with the Bible. So specifically around either trying to prove or disprove the Bible. Now the funny thing is that you often hear of stories of oh we did this archaeological dig and we proved that David didn't exist or Solomon didn't exist or Jericho didn't exist or whatever and it's always front page news you know but then when someone goes and disproves that like the next day type of thing and they're like no well here's the, the we did another dig and we found that what you found is wrong then you don't hear about it because <laughs> that's the way the world works right but suffice to say that there is not a single archaeological dig that disproves the Bible. There is not one. And here's a nice story. The other day I was reading about, um, so say Jesus died around 33 AD, right? There was the story, in a, well not a story, but a research article done by geologists. You know what geologists are, right? People that look at the earth and I'm not an expert on it, but anyway. <laughs> So they actually did a, um, a, a study in the Middle East where they found that there was an earthquake sometime between 30 AD and 35 AD. That there was, there's evidence of an earthquake that took place during that time in Israel. Now if you know your Bible, you know Matthew 27, I think somewhere towards the end of Matthew 27 when Jesus died, there was an earthquake. Now <laughs> these people are not Christians that came up with this. They say, well, there's evidence of this, and they say it's round about 30 to, 33 AF to 35 AD. That blows my mind. I mean, if you show that to a skeptic, they'll be like, yeah, you know, and then ask you the next question. <laughs> but yeah, that, that's amazing to me. So the amount of evidence that there is for the word is just ridiculous. So the Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents, point two, written by eyewitnesses. Now here's where we start in 2 Peter 3. For we did not follow cleverly concocted fables. I love that. <laughs> we, didn't, we did not follow cleverly concocted fables when we made known to you the power and return of our Lord Jesus Christ. No, we were eyewitnesses of his grandeur. Note that, we were eyewitnesses of his grandeur. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when that voice was conveyed to him by the majestic glory. This is my dear Son in whom I am delighted. When this voice was conveyed from heaven, note, we ourselves heard it, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now it goes without saying that the Bible was written by eyewitnesses, right? In almost all cases, the Bible was not written by random people who had no association with uh, the, the events that are actually being recorded. Like let's just think of the Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Matthew was a direct disciple of Jesus. He was the tax collector that, that Jesus called to be with him. So he was literally a first-hand account. Mark, you might say Mark was not a, God, a disciple, but he was a disciple of Simon Peter. So he, when he shared his gospel, he was sharing it effectively from Simon Peter's account, who was a disciple himself. John, we all know John is the, the closest disciple maybe to Jesus. So... His account again is a first-hand account and then you might say oh but what about Luke <laughs> Luke was not a disciple right so I caught you out but if you read the beginning of Luke then you'll have your mind blown because if anyone wanted to write an account from the perspective of not being a, uh, a first-hand witness listen to this Luke 1 verse 1 now many have undertaken to compile an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us like the accounts passed on to us by those who were eyewitnesses and servants of the word from the beginning. Phew. I wish I was a servant of the word. That's, a, that's an awesome 
awesome thing to be called. But so he's trying to compile an account of the, the eyewitness accounts from the beginning. So it seemed good to me as well because I have followed all things carefully from the beginning. Note that. He followed all things carefully from the beginning to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know for certain the things you were taught. That's powerful. In other words, he's specifically writing this book or this um, whatever it was in that day. He's specifically writing it for the purpose of validating the eyewitness accounts that the people have been hearing all this time. I mean, and he's saying that he's been following it, he's been there from the beginning, he's been tracking this. It's like a, a very meticulous sort of person, you know, taking account of everything that they've received and putting it all together and saying, I'm putting this together so that you can be confident that what I'm sharing with you is authentic and all that you've heard is authentic. That's, you can't start a gospel in a better way if you're not a disciple. <laughs> And there's a lot more examples like this. We have Moses who wrote most of the Pentateuch. Moses was actually involved in those situations. He received revelation directly from God. So, of course, his uh, account is very uh, authoritative. Then we've got David. David wrote a lot of the Psalms. David went through a lot of these experiences uh, directly with Jesus, uh, with God. And he also wrote a lot of prophetic stuff, which is very interesting, and we'll touch on that in a second. So all of this leads, all of this thing of using actual eyewitnesses lends a lot of credence to what you're receiving because it's not just some random person writing it, it's a person who was actually an eyewitness to the events. So the Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses, point three, during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. Now why is this important? 1 Corinthians 15 verse 6, this is uh, Paul speaking about Jesus. Then he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So let's say, mathematically, if you say more, uh, what, uh, more than 500, most of whom are still alive, let's say 251 of them were still alive. <laughs> still a lot, right? <laughs> so he's saying that whilst he is writing this, there are people who are still alive who can discredit what he is saying. There's people who can say, no, but you, you're writing nonsense. That's not what actually happened. Jesus didn't come, or Jesus didn't do this or that. Now, why is this so important? It's important because it proves that the Bible, or it makes the Bible falsifiable. Something that is really important when you want to prove the, the, the authenticity of something is you have to be able to allow people to ask questions about it or to disprove it. So if, for example, if you look at the Quran, you can't disprove the Quran. Why? Because it was one guy's revelation received directly from God, apparently. <laughs> apparently. <laughs> so you can go to, you can say to a Muslim, no, but that's not true. But they'll go like, well, how do you know? How do you know what he received from God? Right? And it's an entire um, religion based off of one person's account. Whereas with the Bible, Everything that's written in here, you can. There were people around that could say no, but that's not true. You know. That's what I love about this. So at this point, we've now proven that the Bible is historic, historically reliable, and very, very supported by a ton of evidence. But we haven't touched on supernatural elements or why is it the why is it the Word of God? So we have a really good book at this point. <laughs> Okay, so the Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents 
written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses and point four which reports supernatural events in fulfillment of specific prophecies this is where we start moving from the natural to the supernatural so in verse 19 of our passage moreover we possess the prophetic word as an altogether reliable thing let's say that again moreover we profess the prophetic word as an altogether reliable thing you do well if you pay attention to this as you would a light shining in a murky place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts now any person who any christian will know how many well you won't know how many but you'll know that there's tons and tons of prophecies that have been fulfilled in the new testament and in the old and prophecies that have been fulfilled since the bible has been written as well now we don't have time to go into thousands of these different things but all i want to do is i just want to take one example around a very central topic and prove this whole aspect of there are words in the bible that were written hundreds of years before the event which have been fulfilled now i'm going to read from psalm 22 and you i won't even tell you what this is about you can just make your own um, conclusion around who, who's this talking about or what is this talking about psalm 22 verse 1 my god my god why have you forsaken me <laughs> who said that right jesus why did jesus say that why do you think jesus said my god my god why have you forsaken me do you think he literally meant that god has forsaken him I think the reason why he said that, and it's probably true, is because he wanted specifically to call people's um, attention to that specific psalm. To say, hey, what you read in that psalm is being fulfilled right now. Go and read the psalm. Like He's telling people, look, if I'm saying this when I'm dying, it's clearly quite, uh, quite prophetic. So go and read the psalm, and let's read the psalm. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, and they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. I mean, who said that? <laughs> the people all around him while he was being crucified said that, right? So yeah, again, this is literally account, an account of the crucifixion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. One of the things when you get crucified is that because your body is hanging on nails, your whole body just like sags down and you dislocate certain of your joints. That's what it means by my bones are out of joint. And a lot, if, if there's punctures in any of your organs, you have uh, water flowing or fluid going throughout your body. That's what it means here, where I'm poured out like water, my heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot's hurt, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. Remember they offered him wine vinegar, right? You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Now, David was not crucified. David is the person who wrote this. <laughs> David was not crucified. I don't even think crucifixion existed in this time. Why would you say stuff like this? Isn't it mind-blowing? 
I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. Remember, Jesus was whipped. And when, they, when he was whipped, he was whipped with like one of those whips that rips the flesh off of your body. So you could see the bones underneath. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothes, they cast lots. That is literally <laughs> straight. You could just as well have said that that came straight out of one of the Gospels, right? And yet it was written hundreds, I think maybe a thousand years before Jesus was born. Because David lived about a thousand years before Jesus, if you do the, the calculation with the generations. So that, that is just ridiculous, right? I mean, the fact that we have prophecies that were written hundreds of years before the event on manuscripts that are way older than the ones from the New Testament. And it proves, this proves the supernatural element of Scripture. Because, yes, up until now we just had a reliable text, whereas now we have a supernatural text where things are being fulfilled that don't have human explanations. Remember, someone can say to you, yeah, you know, Jesus healed people or whatever. Those kind of things, you can't really argue about them, right? If someone can say to you, yeah, how do you know that Jesus actually healed people? How do you know that the, the Red Sea was split? And you will be like, okay, well, I don't know. I'm taking it on the account of the Word. But when it comes to prophecies, then it's a different story altogether because now they have been fulfilled and no one can argue about it. Okay, so the Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses which report supernatural events in fulfillment of specific prophecies and the last point, claiming that they are words of divine origin rather than human in origin. Verse 20. Above all, you do well if you recognize this. No prophecy of scripture ever comes about by the prophet's own imagination. That's emphasis added. No prophecy of scripture ever comes about by the prophet's own imagination. For no prophecy was ever born of human impulse, rather men carried along by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That says it all, right? No prophecy of scripture ever comes about by the prophet's own imagination. So this is the most relevant point of all of them, basically. Because now what we're saying is that the Bible is the Word of God. It's the divine Word of God because it claims itself to be the divine Word of God. But this, this verse that I read comes from the Bible, right? <laughs> and within the Bible itself it says that no scripture comes about from the prophet's own imagination. So when we say that the Bible is the authoritative Word of God, it's because the Bible claims that it's the authoritative Word of God. And we shouldn't be, if someone asks us to defend the validity of the Bible, we can refer to the Bible. Because the Bible itself is the Word of God. <laughs> like, I don't know how else to explain it. Um, so we have all these archaeological finds, we have manuscripts, we have uh, scientific research, uh, um, literature, we even have things called the, the, these early church father quotes. They're called the patristic quotes. So when, in the early church when people used to preach, they would do a similar thing to what we're doing now, where they would quote scriptures. Now you can, this is the weird thing, you can put together an entire Bible based purely on the quotes of these guys, except for 12 verses, I think. But you can put together almost an entire Bible based on the quoted verses of these guys. It just goes to show that you don't actually need any of this stuff. So all of these things are just cherries on the cake, so to speak, icing on the cake. The reason why we can believe that the Bible is the Word of God is because the Bible itself validates this. 
Okay, so let's go through our answer one last time. The Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses which reports supernatural events and fulfillment of specific prophecies claiming that they are words of divine origin rather than human in origin. So there you have it, an answer that you can provide the next time someone asks you why you believe in the Bible and they're going to have a really hard time trying to disprove that answer because it's substantiated by tons of evidence. Mm. Sorry. So in closing, the Bible is the, is the authority for all Christians. We need to make sure that we are consistently elevating the word to its rightful place as the inerrant word of God. There's no half measures. We can't, be half, we can't believe half the Bible and not believe the other half. We can't be half Christians. It's all or nothing. Christianity is all or nothing. We have to submit ourselves to the authority of the word and not allow our feelings or social pressures to shift us in a certain direction. We can't allow, like human beings, maybe this doesn't sit well with you, but human beings have been sinful since the beginning. Since the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve partaking of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We've, been, we've always shunned authority. We've always relied on our feelings and our own moral compass as if our opinions are the be-all and end-all of everything. But the news is that they aren't. <laughs> God is supreme, God is sovereign, God is the one who rules all, God is the creator of heaven and earth. You and I would not be here today if it wasn't for God. We wouldn't have woken up this morning, we wouldn't be standing here today if it wasn't for God's grace alone, right? The only reason we are alive is because of God's grace, remember that. So I beg you, the next time that you read this beautiful book, make sure, or just take a pause for a second and reflect on what exactly it is that you're reading. If you read something that doesn't, uh, um, you don't agree with or you don't feel is right, maybe think about why that is. Ask God to help you understand why it is that you would not agree with that. But do not allow your feelings to make you change the text into something that it isn't. So I may be preaching to the choir today. I probably am. <laughs> but it doesn't make a difference to the message. We don't tone down or alter or change the message of God for any reason whatsoever. We preach it exactly how it is. There's a very clear command in scripture to preach the truth in love and in gentleness. But love is not twisting the truth and saying what people want to hear. Because effectively when you're doing that, you're actually robbing people of the treasures that are sitting in heaven for them if they are obedient to God and to this word. So I hope and pray that you're both challenged and equipped for defending the word. And we live in a time of a lot of uh, lies and deceit so you need something rock solid to hang on to and this book right here is the unshakable truth of God. Amen. 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 Alright, thanks very much. <laughs>